In late 1988 and 1989, Marvel's X-Men line built to a decade-in-the-making universe-wide crossover invent Inferno. The world outside your window became infested with the demonic takeover, literalizing hell on Earth and arguably the first and largest all-hands-on-deck Marvel Comics invasion in what has now become an event staple, from Secret Invasion to Empire to King in Black. While conceptually this may sound simple, Inferno is anything but, with years of X-Men storylines and continuity woven into the saga that in so many ways marks the end of both the Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson covers and corners of the X-Men universe that dominate Marvel's 1980s. Today I'll answer, what is Inferno and what's its legacy in X-Comics today? What happens in Mr. Sinister's true debut in his obsession with the summer's gray bloodline? Is Inferno satisfying as the unofficial end of this era of X-Men? It all builds to this, does it work, and a theory for how Inferno connects to Sinister's secrets from House and Powers of 10 slash X, plus much, much more. Hey everybody, you're listening to Comic Book Herald's Crack and Krakoa. I'm Dave Busing, the founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. If you like the CBH YouTube channel or Crack and Krakoa, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing, and commenting on the videos here. It all helps me out a great deal. Spoilers for Inferno, as well as some potential 2020. If you have not read any of the House of X and Powers of Ten stuff in the Hickman era of X-Men, I would say uh, there may be a few moments when I start talking modern comics that you want to fast forward, but I don't get too spoiler heavy, I promise. I really just kind of mention things that relate to this event, okay? So let's dig into it. Taken on its own, Inferno is a fairly confusing, sprawling, massive event. With enough standalone highlights, Mr. Sinister's star debut, Daredevil fighting a vacuum cleaner, to remain entertaining if a whole heck of a lot. Plus, there's enough star power across various tie-ins. The McElhinney, McFarlane, Amazing Spider-Man, fresh off the debut of Venom in issue number 300, Walt Simonson writing Avengers, Miss Anne Nascenti and, and John Romita Jr. on Daredevil, Claremont himself and Alan Davis on Excalibur, to make Inferno Marvel's best mega crossover event of the 1980s. Sure, the bar to clear is essentially Secret Wars 2, which is one of my least favorite comics of all time, but still. But really, it's not an impossible to take Inferno on its own, and again, I think it's far more accurate to view the event as the end of an X-Men era. And, as with all moments in ongoing Big 2 superhero comics, every ending is also a beginning. There are effectively two primary threads that drive Inferno. You have Ileana Rasputin, aka Magic's full transformation into the Dark Child and Ruler of Limbo, and the revelation of Madeline Pryor's true origins, and the ramifications that knowledge has turning her into the Goblin Queen. In either case, women of the X-Universe turn to demonic allies for a full-on takeover of Earth and desire to see the world burn in Hellfire. Both threads were impressively set in motion years and years earlier. Modern readers like to talk a lot about Jonathan Hickman's ability to seed plots and storylines years in advance and to effectively tackle them and give each seed its due much later in a grand tapestry of interlocking storytelling. I actually think the 1980s X-Office's ability to do the same thing, but often without necessarily planning to, goes extremely underrated. Back in Uncanny X-Men number 160 by Chris Claremont and Brett Anderson, that planted the seeds for everything to do with Ileana Rasputin, Limbo, and Sim and the Demons of that Realm, and that was released in August of 1982, more than eight years before Inferno. Over that time, Ileana's journey continues across her own miniseries and New Mutants written by both Claremont and especially in the build to Inferno by Louise Simonson and Brett Blevins. Whether it's something that was known right from the jump, Ileana's story was always building to an event like Inferno. You know, we have seen this character 
character and her transformation from when she was stolen, kidnapped to the realm of Limbo, this basically this hell realm, as a six-year-old, very, very young girl, and then, of course, aged up and raised in that dimension. The saga of Madeline Pryor is a bit different, although, again, years in the making, just more adaptively so. Scott Summers first meets Maddie, the Alaskan redhead who looks a startling amount like the recently deceased Jean Grey in Uncanny X-Men number 168, the famous Professor X is a Jerk issue, released in April 1983. Originally, Claremont has said in interviews that he intended this as a mysterious similarity, but ultimately just a bonkers coincidence that set the stage for Cyclops truly graduating from life with the X-Men and starting a family with wife Madeline and their eventual little baby Christopher. These plans were interrupted when the Jean Grey remains dead edict that followed the Dark Phoenix saga was overturned, editorially, primarily by editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, against Claremont's wishes in the 1986 Fantastic Four Avengers two-part story that established Jean and the Phoenix Four as two distinct entities, effectively absolving Jean for the Phoenix genocide of the Dabari back in the Dark Phoenix saga. All reports are that Claremont was furious, but ultimately he did one of his most underrated traits as the head of X in the 80s. He adapted and made something good out of it. I've talked about this before, but when you look at situations where writers are sort of forced to connect their stories to some editorial line-wide edict, Secret Wars 2, probably the most notorious, nobody is better at turning dung into gold like Claremont. Secret Wars number 2 is literally one of my least favorite comics of all time, yet Claremont's tie-in issues across Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants, especially New Mutants, are quite good, and utilized to great effect across each series. So when faced with the return of Jean Grey and Scott's world's worst combination husband-dad-dude decision to flee back to her for X-Factor, Claremont spent the following two-plus years reinventing Madeline Pryor's storyline and potential on the fly. And the end result, what we get out of all of that and out of basically being forced to tell a story he didn't want to do, is the the 1989 event, Inferno. We'll start with the Claremont written issues of Uncanny X-Men because that's the flagship, and also because it's easily the most notable instance in the entire X-Men line when other creators, namely Louis Simonson writing across New Mutants, X-Factor, and Exterminators, actually contribute more to the core narrative than the reigning X-Writer. Claremont's contributions are comparatively concise, and for my money, they do benefit for it. In Uncanny X-Men number 239 to 243, writer Chris Claremont, art by Mark Silvestri, inks by Dan Green, colors by Glennis Oliver, and letters by Tom Orzakowski, we get the core story of Madeline Pryor, Mr. Sinister and Scott Summers set against the backdrop of Manhattan, overrun by demonic transformations and demon hordes of limbo. Again, there are literal demons running around that need to be battled, but then also there's just a transformation of the city where objects and based everything in this in Earth is turning into, you know, a hellish dimension. As this demonic takeover of New York occurs, there's a jarring blend of, like, comedy, over-the-top satanic panic, and horror, with such horrific instances as a family eaten alive by a demon elevator, a New York City tourist getting their eyes stolen by demon binoculars, Wolverine killing a mailbox, Ileana killing a barber's chair, Daredevil in the vacuum cleaner, you get the drill, right? <laughs> like, the whole city is alive and just, it, it's still, like, the weird thing is, you know, you see the man mopping here in the video, there's still a sense of normalcy, you know? Like, there's a long build to this where people are saying, oh, that's weird, it looked like that thing moved, and oh, that's really strange, before it's just full-on hell on earth taking over, but there's a, there's a period where things are changing and they're happening, and people aren't quite aware of what's going on. Now, there are a few reasons we see so many demons spilling into the realm of Earth, but primarily it's the result of Nastier, a demon introduced here in the pages of Louis Simonson written New Mutants and Exterminators miniseries, and Sim, who we've seen known as Belasco's right-hand creep from the Magic miniseries, and then you have Madeline Pryor's transformation into Marvel's Goblin Queen, making a deal with Nastier for the power in demonic armies that will drive her newfound desire to 
see the world burn in an inferno, right? So there's a whole convergence, really, of threats and plots, and it's part of what makes Inferno complicated, but part of what also makes it pretty interesting is there's not just, like, one big bad here, right? There's not just, you know, oh, it's Magneto versus the X-Men. There's a whole bunch of different, you know, people, Nastier, Madeline Pryor, and, and Sim primarily, and then Mr. Sinister thrown on top of that, right? It's pretty interesting. Why does Madeline Pryor go down this road, right? Why does she accept this demonic invasion turn into Marvel's Goblin Queen? Well, the in-story answer is that it's in these issues of Uncanny X-Men where her history is retconned by creator Chris Claremont and artist Mark Silvestri to show that Madeline is in fact a clone of Jean Grey, created by Mr. Sinister from DNA he stole from Jean. It's a harrowing revelation for Maddie as everything that she thought she knew about her existence gets mixed up in this tangle of glam Sinister's design. And we should mention too, for people less familiar with the character of Madeline Pryor, you know, she is very much an X-Men ally at this point in time. So, you know, initially she marries Cyclops, but then Cyclops bails when he hears Jean Grey's back. He runs off to X-Factor and Madeline is left alone. And eventually what happens is she joins up with the Uncanny X-Men and she's been spending time with them during their post-fall of the mutants Australian Outback era as a very core team member, right? Like she runs basically their computer monitoring system. She develops a very close relationship with Scott's brother, Alex, and she becomes a pretty vital member, you know, a human member, seemingly, of the team. Now, complicating matters further is the presence of Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, revealed in these issues to actually be named Nathan, a fact pointed out to me by Connor Goldsmith of the excellent Cerebrocast during our My Marvelous Year podcast conversation about Inferno. And I should mention here, if you want to get the read-through of X-Men comics in this period of time of Marvel Comics in these years, check out the My Marvelous Year Reading Club. We go year by year through the history of Marvel Comics. There's a podcast, and you don't even have to listen. You can always just join the Reading Club too. But to find more about that, you can check the links in the show notes, go to mymarvelousyear.com, etc., etc. But what happens here is now you have this baby involved, and, and Nathan, uh, Char Christopher Charles, you know, as, as X-Readers, I won't spoil it <laughs> if you're totally just locked in 1989, but as readers know, he's going to go on to be somebody that, that most X-Men fans know. But for most of the story, he's really just a plot device um, as, as a means of kind of seeking revenge. Now, the revelation that Madeline is a clone cast doubt onto her realness, her very personhood, and drives her increasingly controlled by rage, primarily expressed towards Cyclops and Jean Grey, you know, this, this woman that she is cloned from and whose Cyclops, you know, chooses over her time and time again. In a particularly harrowing sequence, Madeline finds Jean's parents at her tombstone, at Jean's tombstone. Remember, Jean is still believed dead by many at this point, including her own family, including the X-Men, and Madeline gruesomely turns Jean's parents into her demon pets. There are a handful of moments like this. You know, I mentioned the binoculars, the demon binoculars stealing a man's eyes that are really creepy and really scary. And I mean, Madeline's transformation of Jean's parents into her demon pets, it's got that Immortal Hulk, Joe Bennett body horror that people are talking about and sort of reveling in in modern comics. So Madeline is so full of rage that she is ready to burn the world in fire, including her son, as a pure revenge play against Scott Summers. This is no small thing. Remember, Maddie's state with baby Christopher when Cyclops abandoned the family, not the other way around. You know, it's not like she is historically this this extremely negligent parent um, who does not care about their child. She did, I think, for all intents and purposes. But the way this event unfurls and, you know, the, the sort of, again, sort of editorial, but then also story mandate to make her a villain is then her saying, I, I'm so far gone at this point. I'm so full of rage that I would sacrifice my own son to see this world burn. 
If you're keeping up with 2020's Hellions, and it's one of my favorite comics of the entire Dawn of X and the Hickman era of X-Men, so I would recommend that you do, the first arc written by Zeb Wells effectively taps into these ideas of Madeline Pryor's absolute betrayal and removal of personage. Later in the story, she says in heartbreaking fashion, I only wanted them to know that I was a real girl. And as she says here on the screen, it's very unwise to pretend I don't exist. It's my least favorite thing. And that's exactly what happens to Madeline in Inferno. You know, she is told, you're not real. You don't exist. When we have all this history that we've read as, as X-Men readers to see, actually she does have a history, and she did exist. This rage actually drives Madeline further than Mr. Sinister ever anticipated, as he doesn't fully see the activation of her psychic powers and literal deals with the devil, in this case Neastir, transformed into a techno-organic demon as the event progresses. Oh yeah, by the way, Limbo was uh, infected by Warlock's techno-organic virus, and the demons are, much, are, are, are a part of that now as well. So sinister schemes, yes, but I do think it's important to note in Inferno, he also misses details, you know, like any good villain, like a Doctor Doom or like a Mad Thinker, not that Mad Thinker's on those levels, but just these schemers and planners, they they have their plans and it can often seem like, oh, they've pulled all the strings and they know everything. But again, with Mr. Sinister, he didn't anticipate Madeline Pryor going to this level, okay, and that's an important detail. Ultimately, Madeline is stopped by the X-Men, but not before really fully bonding physically and emotionally with Alex Summers and seeing the majority of the X-Team warped into darker versions of their innate personalities. The likes of Dazzler and Longshot get it particularly bad. In psychic battle with between Madeline and Jean, you know, with the full emotional weight of clones stealing one another's lives at stake, Jean Grey absorbs Madeline's very essence all her memories, and in terms of X-Men continuity, all her continuity and adventures. Like, they basically make it so, okay, Madeline, she was actually Jean the whole time. Jean Grey is walking around with all those memories of her story. It is... A pretty neat editorial trick to say, like, yes, those X-Men adventures still happened. We're just going to give them back to Jean now because we have to write Madeline out. I think you can make a compelling case with Inferno that Mr. Sinister's influence on the X-Men and Madeline Pryor's transformation into the Goblin Queen could have been enough of a core to spark this Inferno event. And if you want to argue that the event is needlessly complicated and convoluted via everything else, I kind of hear that. Nonetheless, magics build from innocent young sister to Colossus to tortured mutant growing up in a hell realm to full-on badass dark child ruler of Limbo's demon hordes certainly fits the Inferno mold, right? It's a pretty perfect fit. Again, this is definitely the absolute most Louise Simonson you'll find in the X-verse with the longtime X-editor and writer working across three core tie-ins, Exterminators, X-Factor, and New Mutants. About 75% of the core X-books for Inferno are Louise Simonson books, so as much as today we talk about the Claremont era, and of course it very much is that with him writing across 16 years of X-Men, Louise Simonson is a huge, huge contributor to making this event tick. In Exterminators, the primary function is a four-issue mini to lay out that the demon invasion in New York, you know, basically like, why is it happening? And they build up the demon ruler players of Nastier and Sim, reminding us all that, yes, Limbo is still taken over by Warlock's techno-organic virus. Oh, and uh, it features, you know, these demons stealing mutant babies to put in a pentagram above New York City that will power further takeover by the hordes of Limbo. Okay, so if you take away nothing else from Exterminators, baby mutant demon pentagram <laughs> is the main thing. Plus, you get the introduction of Wizkid, a major player in the just-launched Sword series in the Reign of X, which is actually very fun to go back and read about how Takeshi gets his start 
in X Comics. In yet another Zeb Wells written run too, the guy clearly has a fondness for Inferno, these Inferno babies are brought back into the pages of New Mutants in a way I won't spoil here, but will mention that you can check out my whole Kraken Krakoa video on the Zeb Wells New Mutants run if you are interested in pursuing that way, or better yet, read the run yourself. On the New Mutant side, after Ileana fully transforming into her Dark Child, Dark Half, really since the death of Doug Ramsey in Fall of the Mutants, this has been happening, she accidentally unleashes the demons, more demons from Limbo into the world. The New Mutants team transports back to Limbo, where they are made aware of Ileana's beginning. So Limbo is this realm where time doesn't quite mean what it used to, right? You can kind of travel through time, it's all wacky. They go and they actually see young Ileana after she was captured by Belasco and by these demons. Ileana tells the team about what happened in Uncanny X-Men number 160 in the Magic miniseries, you know, details that they were not fully aware of, even with uh, Ileana on their team. You know, there's a lot of sort of... Uh, what would you call it, sort of guilt placed on Ileana by the New Mutants team, kind of not understanding, like, her her danger and her embracing of the dark side, but they don't know what you've gone through, right? And you have Louis Simonson here specifically filling in and recontextualizing Sim's abuses of Ileana, making the absolutely traumatic and tragic childhood of this little girl hit harder than it had ever had, right? There's a clear sexual abuse uh, parallel that is drawn here that I think, you know, you can see, but it, it's made less subtle than it's been, and it's very hard to read, and it should be. There's a lot to take from Ileana's story here, as again, this is the full journey of magic from early 80s through the end of the decade, and in many ways it's the end of her story until much, much later in Marvel history. When Ileana sees her younger self, too, she is filled with rage at this innocence, all this potential that she never got to have because she was trapped and raised in hell, effectively, right? She didn't have the choice to choose good or evil, really. It was sort of hoisted upon her, just survival was all she ever really had. And what Rain Sinclair tells her very emotionally, trying to, to reach out to Ileana Rasputin, their friend, saying, this time you have a choice. And this obviously does get Ileana's attention. Ultimately, it gets her attention in a way where she is able to choose between darkness and light. And rather than remain in limbo, ruling over dark, she sacrifices herself and saves her six-year-old younger self to give her the chance on Earth our Ileana that we know previously never got, right? It's a truly emotional reconnection between Colossus and his baby little sister. Again, like very literally just a young, young baby girl here. And it, it's very sweet to see one of my favorite versions of Colossus, this Brett Blevins drawn, just hulking figure hugging this little girl and his family. You know, it's, it's a very sweet moment and it's, it's kind of, you know, it's bittersweet in a way because we lose the Ileana Rasputin character that we knew in Marvel to this point. But of course, that is that is her story, right? And it's about giving now this younger child a second chance. In the pages of the Simonson written X Factor with art by husband Walt Simonson, until an up-and-coming Rob Liefeld joins for the aftermath issue in X Factor number 40, Louis Simonson more or less for the first time gets to really write a full X Universe book fully synchronizing with the events of Chris Claremont's Uncanny and bringing the X-Men and X-Factor teams together for the first time since the Dark Phoenix Saga. Since Mutant Massacre, Wolverine is really the only X-Men member aware that Jean Grey is alive, and since Fall of the Mutants, both X-Factor and the New Mutants believe the X-Men are dead. Simonson shines in this role, concentrating most on the stories of Jean Grey and Cyclops, Scott's family with Madeline and Nathan Christopher, and of course all of their newfound connections to Mr. Sinister, again really revealed in all of his glory for the first time in these issues. Technically, there are appearances of Mr. Sinister prior to this point, but Inferno is is absolutely the, the star moment for that character. 
So once the dual threats of Madeline Pryor and Nasty Year's Demons are seemingly solved, the X-Men and X-Facts return back to their former X-Mansion base, only to find that it's been raided by Mr. Sinister and his marauders. I do find it interesting, this idea of Sinister digging through their lives for clues, information, and DNA for future schemes. Moments like this are hard to not view in a modern post-House of X Powers of Ten lens, with Mr. Sinister as a clear key schemer in the Hickman era of X-Men. It's the sort of moment that could become a casual flashback or reference point for a time Mr. Sinister grabbed essential data off the X-Men that leads to whatever revelations are going to come in the character's future. And, of course, we should mention, in Powers of Ten, in one of the biggest sinister secrets that was revealed, there was the reveal that Inferno, as a word, has significance in this era in the 2020 modern version of X-Men. I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about it. I even have a notepad full of diagrams of squares and circles, but the language square that circle is no clearer to me now as far as a clue after rereading the event. What we do know, though, is that Sinister's uh, Inferno reenactment, when it comes in the Krakoa era, when it comes to fruition, what took a long time to build, Krakoa, the mutant nation, is likely to come crumbling. This is not the point of the event, but what if, for Sinister's next modern Inferno, he revealed that he had manipulated someone else's genetics, right? So in this Inferno, the revelation is, hey, Malin Pryor, you're a clone, and I manipulated the life of Scott Summers and yourself. What if this time, he revealed that he had manipulated the genetics and lives of Wanda and Pietro Maximoff, the children of Magneto? Of everyone in Marvel whose origins, genealogy, and as of 2015, mutant status, who has been toyed with more often than Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver? It would be very easy easy for the walking retcon engine to waltz into their lives and say they are actually mutants. And he set them up for this, but that, and here's where Sinister's plan could go any number of directions, Charles Xavier insisted mutants have a great pretender boogeyman rather than acknowledge the truth, right? What if there was advantage for the Krakoan nation to have a human boogeyman in the form of the Scarlet Witch, specifically in Avenger 2, as we pit ourselves closer and closer to an inevitable X-Men versus Avengers kind of conflict. Plus, Scarlet Witch is notoriously dangerous when people make her mad, right? Just look at Avengers Disassembled and House of M. What will she do when she finds out Sinister has been tampering with her life? There is zero evidence <laughs> to support any of this, but it was a theory and thought I had after reading Inferno again about what a new Inferno could look like because I don't think it's going to reflect the same beats, right? I don't think it's going to tap back into Madeline Pryor and the history of, of that character because that character's already shown up in Hellions and there was a, a brief story there, so I think it would actually be something much, much bigger and Scarlet Witch potentially gives us that. Getting back to Inferno, during the battle with Sinister and the malice-controlled Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris, that ensues, Mr. S reveals that not only was he behind Maddie, but he straight up been orchestrating events of Scott's life since he was, he was a wee orphan trying to understand his burgeoning mutant abilities. This is what I'm talking about when I describe Sinister now as a walking retcon engine, because right here in 89, we get Sinister's, admittedly unreliably narrated, tales of being with Scott in the orphanage, and dictating so much of Cyclops' life and choices, right down to when he he meets Madeline Pryor. You know, Sinister talks about, like, basically, I arranged for you to meet her in that location, in that moment, in that setting, knowing you would fall for her. You know, so he's saying, basically, Scott, I know everything about you. I am your god. It's an especially interesting reveal because Sinister's presence does in many ways offer a left-field potential defense for Scott Summers, a character who is really quite ruined by the editorially mandated resurrection of post-Dark Phoenix Jean Grey in the pages of Avengers and Fantastic Four because he abandons his wife and child. You know, it's this moment of a heroic Scott Summers who is suddenly, like, nigh on impossible to root for. I don't think this, this retcon, you know, basically saying, like, Sinister... 
schemed that and basically he set up Scott for that quite works in absolving Scott of that blame because there still is just a, a feeling, if nothing else, of an element of choice there. But you can see the thinking, you know, it's definitely Louis Simonson, I think in particular, trying to say like, we need to make Scott Summers uh, a, a hero we can sort of uh, look up to again in a way that the last three years of X-Comics really hasn't presented the character. So after much pulling, prodding, and needling, including by Alex Summers, whose sibling cosmic powers sort of sting Cyclops, but make his blast even more powerful, ultimately, Cyclops, you know, powered up, lays apparent waste to Mr. Sinister, finally ending his immediate threat and generally wrapping his physical threats present in Inferno, right? So Mr. Sinister sort of represents the last battle of the event, but nonetheless, the emotional consequences and the learnings, of course, are going to meet, reach much further across X-Men history here, but we do get the iconic scene of Cyclops blasting Mr. Sinister to smithereens again, or so it seems. Now, there's a lot. Even within this explanation, Inferno is so massive and covers so many corners of the X-Men universe that there are moments I still didn't dig into fully here. For example, Warren Worthington, freshly in his Archangel persona as given by Apocalypse, dealing with Cameron Hodge, the right, and Hodge's murder of Warren's longtime love interest, Candy Southern. That all happens in some X-Factor issues building up to the event. Similarly, there's a lot here for modern readers concerning the debuts of Nanny and Orphan Maker, which happens again in X-Factor, or the X-Men finally getting their violent confrontation with the Marauders after Mutant Massacre. You know, there's this build where in 86's Mutant Massacre, the X-Men and, and the Morlocks specifically are massacred by the Marauders team sent by Sinister. We finally do get sort of a, a comeuppance for that team who they've been hunting and, and hounding really ever since that 86 event. That all kind of resolves here. So, that does it for a look back at Inferno. It is a massive event, but it is essential. It is also a really good example of a mega, mega crossover done pretty well. You know, I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's like, you know, oh, if you want to read any X-Men story here, let me hand you my copy of Inferno. But as the tail end of this era of X-Men, as an event sort of that thing, so many things have been building towards, it's actually quite good, and it could have been an absolute mess, and it is not. You know, I think there's many, many good things that come out of this, um, including, of course, Mr. Sinister as a villain that, that we all kind of know and love. And then really from here, you know, the, yes, Chris Claremont stays around until 1991, but this is, this is definitely like the end of an era in many, many ways. So I'm curious, what do you all think of Inferno the event? What do you think about some of the theories I proposed here? Let me know in the comments. I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks in particular to those of you over at patreon.com slash comicbookherald who support the site. You can support the site as well in Comic Book Herald initiatives, including Crack and Krakoa videos, by going over to patreon.com slash comicbookherald and donating as little as $1 a month to get some cool benefits and support the site yourself. It is all greatly appreciated. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com, at comicbookherald online. Look for the best comics ever in my Marvelous Year podcast for more from me. Otherwise, please consider liking and subscribing to the Comic Book Herald YouTube channel. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and as always, enjoy the comics. <laughs>